Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I am Sean Merwin, here with my electrified co-host, Teos Abadia. <laughs> Teos, welcome back to the world. Uh, it has been a week. I lost power Saturday 30 minutes before jumping into a online VTT game to try the MCDM uh, RPG playtest uh, with the oh, D20 yeah. gang. And uh, I was really excited to play. I had my character. I was all prepared. And then, yeah, and then I lost power essentially for a week with a day and a half, well, eight days without power. Although we did have, for some number of hours, we had power and then it went away again. I, I am so tired of, of the process. It's, um, yeah, I like power. <laughs> so you're not ready for the collapse of civilization? Is that what you're saying? No, let's not do that. Let's, let's seriously work together okay. to prevent the collapse of civilization. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, for those of you who think, you know, my life would be better without power and electricity and all these things, Teos has other opinion. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's worse if the rest of the world continues without you. It, it could be. It yeah. Could be bad. It, it yeah. also is weird that, like, you can well, still use your phone for a while. And so, like, you, you're in contact but can't do too much, you know? That's a weird thing. Like, I'd almost rather lose all electronics and just live in a bubble for a bit and endure than than the weird in between world. So anyway, gotcha. Well, we're glad you're back. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're ready to talk about D and D role playing games and all of that goodness. We are going to get right now to our listener corner and in the news. And later in the episode, we are going to talk about the Shadow Dark RPG. Give it our review. But that's a little later. Now we're going to get to our uh, tweet bag, tooth bag, and Patreon missive section, starting with Mini Moose via YouTube, who asks, how often do you think you could play this system, talking about the Blade Runner role-playing game, which we reviewed last time, uh, before it got stale or repetitive, and without it being so specific in theme and focus? And that is an excellent question. We just had this discussion in a couple of different places online. How, in my opinion, these games are great. Uh, Alien, right? all of these games that are based on specific licenses or very uh, sort of concrete and discrete movies or even fiction can be really, really great. But once you've played through the theme a couple of times or played through mm -hmm. the action of the movie, then it becomes harder to create more content as the game master, uh, as opposed to a generic system where you can really build lots of different things. But uh, what do you think about that, Tails? Because I think you had a good answer too. Thanks. It, it is a great question. It's one I pondered and, and why I didn't back the original um, uh, starter set when, and, and RPG when it came out on, on, on Kickstarter. I, I kind of thought, you know, does this have legs? Would I really play this multiple times? And and what got me buying it, and I think has gotten other people buying it, is just what a great quality that starter set is. Uh, plus, it was on sale at 50% off, which I couldn't say no to because I was like, you know, this this will clearly be well worth the money to have just even a one-time experience. And I think that actually Blade Runner surprisingly has more legs than you might initially think. Um, th there are two keys to it that I think are, are, are interesting when it comes to game design. One is 
lethality. So even the first time that I played, I had to make a call of like, you know, these guys are, are attacking with knives. Should I consider that piercing or bludgeoning? And I thought that based on it being sort of a brawl, it felt like bludgeoning. So when there was a critical hit, I used the bludgeoning table and that resulted in a broken arm. But had I gone with piercing, it would have punctured their skull and killed the character. And that it would have been so soon to lose that character. And I mean, you know, we're going to talk about Shadow Dark. This isn't Shadow Dark. This is Blade Runner where we're trying to tell your story and how you view the world. Are we, do we really want to kill you off that fast? And so it gets into that whole question of, you know, if characters that can die sort of so unpredictably, do you lose the, the will of the players to kind of have a long campaign? The second thing that I saw, Sean, was, was around the ability of the GM to come up with these kinds of stories. And the, the beauty of, of Blade Runner is this question of what humanity means. And so we're kind of asking the GM, could you just please create like, you know, a captivating sci-fi novel type situation, right? Well, maybe I'm not a novel writer, you know, and I'm not that clever. Um, and, and so I was curious, you know, to what extent, like the rules try to help you, but I don't think they fully, like, they, I think they could. But I, and I think there is an approach one could take to writing these types of stories, but it's not quite laid out for you to make it easy. I did look at the PDF that is now available for the second adventure in the series, which will be available. And it is really good. It's, it's every bit as good as the first one. Uh, it clearly has a part three. It does progress the story in a campaign sense. And so I, I think, you know, maybe over time, this series will really show you how you can write a campaign. Um, but, but it is for sure a challenge. I, I don't know. What do you think, Sean? I, I go back to the Alien role-playing game for this, which I bought the, the beginner uh, box mm -hmm. set. And I sort of had the same feeling that alien is about this creature on a ship that's killing folks <laughs> in the background it's about corporate greed right it's about survival it's about these things and so when you get away from okay we've escaped the ship with the horrible xenomorph on it now what well it's either go to the next ship with a xenomorph on it or delve into this idea of corporate greed and, and survival and doing what you have to do. But there's only so much of that mm -hmm. that you can do with the, at least with the, the rules in the box set, that limited amount yeah. of things. And so it, it's like, you could you do it? As Teo said, if you're a novelist, you could absolutely <laughs> do it. You could go make the prison colony and have the adventure set there. So now it's not a xenomorph on the ship. It's a xenomorph on the prison colony. And there's other things going on. <laughs> but after a while, it's yeah. like it becomes like die hard on a, sh on a ship. Yeah. Die hard on a train. On a plane. Die yeah. hard on an airplane. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. yes, but yeah. no. But in some ways, yeah. that's what people like, too. Right. Mm -hmm. If you were playing a D and D game and it was like, okay, you go into a dungeon and you fight these weird things and you get this weird treasure, you come out. What do you do next? You go into a dungeon, you fight these <laughs> other weird things, get this other weird treasure, and yeah. so it can be okay for yeah. your group. Yeah, um, and I think but that's maybe the specificity of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would say that Alien has the problem that like, what are you actually going to do or change? And and it's really sort of just survive, right? And, and there's very little, you know, right. if you look at like Sigourney Weaver, you know, what is she doing across the series, right? 
Well, Ripley manages to keep some people alive, but then those darn writers just wipe them off the screen anyway. And, and so it's, a, it's just sad, right? Yeah. And, and she does not get to the heart yeah. of the machine to truly thwart them or anything like that. And Blade Runner, I think, can offer a little more than that because it isn't just, it isn't in fact survival, though obviously you want to survive, but it is about the society that you're in. And so you could have a longer campaign that explores that. But it, it's probably a lot like some of those TV shows we watch where we love them and we go, and this should just be two or three seasons. You know, that, that's mm -hmm. the best way for this property to exist. Don't make 20, don't make 40 offshoots. And so maybe that is, you know, some games like Blade Runner are a bit more of that kind of like, you know, is it a one shot? Is it a three shot? Is it a short campaign? And maybe that's fine. You know, like that, that could be still well worth yeah. the money for the, for the set and the core book. And this next question sort of piggybacks on this discussion. Uh, this is from Box60625 via our Patreon Discord. Uh, I enjoyed the podcast covering Blade Runner. It inspired me to purchase the starter set. In the most recent discussion, the two of you talked about the style of gameplay. And I was wondering if you see any comparison mm -hmm. with Call of Cthulhu. And by that, I mean players could choose where to start their investigation, and then piece everything together only after they have found enough clues. And a follow-up, what do you like or not like about that comparison? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's investigation games are their own special animal. Mm -hmm. Because when we talked before about becoming the novelist, that's sort of what you have to do. The novelist, though, has the luxury of 27 drafts and controlling the characters and putting the pieces together in a way that both surprises and delights the reader. Whereas you as the game master are dealing with a bunch of people at the table uh, who can do anything they want and have their own desires and wants and needs. And so it's, it's hard in my experience to put together, even in D&D, putting together that sort of investigation type game. Yeah. But it definitely is a theme for certain adventures or certain games out there. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, I think that in both of the, the genres, that is part of the fun, right? That, that you, I mean, Blade Runner is very explicit. You know, you're a cop, right? You, you're the cop mm -hmm. on a, the hard, the tough cop on a hard beat kind of thing, hard cop on tough beat, whatever it is. Um, and you are digging into that, right? It's got the whole noir element. Like you are really going after that you've got the trench coat and the hat and the whatever you want you know you, and you can pull that off and that's a lot of the fun and i think call of cthulhu often has that too right where you you are often playing that kind of thing maybe a little different maybe you're a librarian an archaeologist you know whatever but it still has that sort of key of how you play that role and go with it and then approach investigation through your role and they both have i think that's part of the sweet spot of play is digging into that and you know maybe you're flipping your book to write some notes about the suspect or whatever, and you're trying to pin down the crimes and you're looking for clues in a room. And there is something to be said for how you write that. Um, but, but also just the play style, I think, I think can be a lot of fun, right? Uh, we've talked about Knights, Black Agents and, and Gumshoe, where the assumption is you will find the clue and, and the, the action shifts uh, from finding the clue as, as it often is in D&D &D, to saying, what do you do with the clue? 
you know, what is the clue? What is your approach towards gaining the clue? Things like that, right? So if we know that there's a briefcase on a train, it's not about just a combat example and making a perception check. Um, it is about your decision of when do you attack the train? Do you even attack it? Do you infiltrate it? Do you wait? Do you get there early? Do you go there late? Do you, you know, any number of things, right? Do you sweet talk somebody into giving you the, the going onto the train for you and getting stuff? Like there's so many open approaches when you get into that gumshoe type of approach. And I think Blade Runner and Call of Cthulhu to some extent give you that or can give you that, uh, especially Blade Runner. Um, yeah, what do you think, Sean? <laughs> Uh, I, I have a separate channel where I, I talk with all the freelancers I've worked with. And we share ideas and tips and stuff, mostly for 5e. And we got into a discussion the other day about what's the difference in an adventure between events and encounters. Mm -hmm. And everyone had a slightly different take on it, I think. Uh, so, you know, some people were like, well, events are things that happen in an adventure without the characters there. And encounters are the things that happen with the with the and then someone was like yeah almost but i think this and i think that but this this question that brought this question brought that discussion to mind because we want our games generally to feel real the events that happen the things that take place the interaction between the characters and the story we want to feel real like connected but it's yeah. not real right right because we as the game masters are directing this mm -hmm. thing uh, and we have prompts and we have die rules and we have randomness but in the long run we have to move the story in front of the players yeah and it takes a lot uh, it takes a very deft touch even you know either whether you're designing the game or as you're running the game to do that in a way that feels organic and, you know, people rail against railroad adventures when that's sort of what stories are <laughs> sure. in, in our lives, yeah. right? This happened and this happened and this happened. Well, why did that happen? For these four reasons. And then this happened and this happened. And so, you know, we're, we're used to that sort of narrative thing. And mm -hmm. I, I'm not saying you should railroad because railroading is more about taking away player agency than it is about linear storytelling. But it takes a very deft touch to be able to put all of these pieces together so that the events that happen feel organically drawn from consequences or real world things that would happen because you didn't do A, so B is going to happen. Or you did A, so B is going to happen. Yeah. So without making it feel railroady or bludgeony or or whatever uh so it's just it's not just the system it's also the way you use the system that is important when you're trying to uh put together a story that flows in those ways and when i think of call of cthulhu scenarios um i tend to think of the situation has a strong sense of the unknown remaining the unknown. Uh, and all, pretty much every Call of Cthulhu scenario I've ever played, you really, like, you pick up clues, but they're not, like, aha clues. They're, like, fragments that maybe point you in some direction for a really long time until the final reveal comes out, 
which often murders you <laughs> or, or has a strong capacity to murder yeah. you. You know, like you, you, you're looking into the family and the old manor house and you find, you know, signs that the yeah. grandmother went insane and then signs that the, you know, grandfather was hallucinating and that the blah, blah, blah and all these things. Mm-hmm. And then you you at the end of it. Well, there's the elder Torah that just swallows you up in the basement. Right. And and. And that's kind of it or, or some minor little fulcrum bit like, well, if you save the sun, then it can all be undone or some kind of thing like that. You know, plunge the mm-hmm. throw the book into the maw. Blade Runner is different, right? Blade Runner, while it is investigative, it's it's and you may be going through the room looking for clues. You're generally finding true clues that reveal things a, a little more like you would in, in typical novels and TV shows. It's not unknowable. Right at the end of it is a real human who made some choices or an Android you choose <laughs> uh, and 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 you're unraveling what what happened. Right. And same thing with sort of most gumshoe games. You are picking up the pieces that say that, ah, this person's a spy. Well, you know, they're a spy. What do you want to do about it? Um, and, and the fun is in the doing, not in, in the unknowable mystery that later will consume you. Right. And I think that is an important difference. And just go, go ahead. It looks like you have a thought. No, I, I was actually going to agree with you and say that's a great way of, of saying it because Call of Cthulhu, if the clues were so straightforward, the players who are used to that would be like, oh, yeah, we just found a note saying go to the hospital. So we just go to the hospital. That's that's yeah. no fun. Whereas yeah. in Blade Runner, you, you want that. You want yeah. clues that say go to the hospital. Yeah. 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 And, and I think that, you know, Kalakulu often has a little bit of the D and D focus on it, where you feel like um, you know you can draw a line to end, to the next steps, and those things are clear. Versus modern games, often because they're modern and we're more familiar with them, we often approach them from perspective. Well, I could go talk to the cops. I could go to the library. I could go to, like there's a wider sense of what the players can do, and they'll they'll naturally adopt that stance. So. You have to both allow for that and and keep that in mind because you know well yeah what what does happen if the and, and I think this comes up in in other types of games like um I know it's, it comes up a lot in um uh things that tales from the loop right you know can't the kids just call the cops to solve it for them right and so you have to think about that well you know okay you don't call the cops like that's just a premise of the game right or those kinds of things because because right. otherwise you know it can destabilize quickly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even further following up on this is a question from Ban Joey coming in via Mastodon. Aside from listening to great game designers, do you have any tips for discovering the heart of an RPG? As you've said many times, the design and rules determine the kind of game you're playing. How does one quickly see through the line of a system when learning a new RPG? I was so excited by your enthusiasm for Blade Runner then I immediately bought the starter set and I can't wait to play it. Thanks for your thoughts. Uh, yeah. So for me, it's all about the game loop mm-hmm. and how that game loop delivers on the promise of what the game says that it gives you. So if if the system says, you know, this is an action-packed, pulpy RPG of fast hands and faster cars or fast guns, and then you play the game loop where you see the game loop and it's like, okay, during play it takes 20 minutes for each player to take their turn. And there's all these charts to look at 
and roll on and determine, then it's not a fast-paced anything. Right. It's a slow game of car chases and fighting. Uh, so the, though that's that's what it is for me. It's does the game loop, does the experience that the player is going to go through at the table back up what the game says it does? That's a really good point. It reminds me of several times as a parent trying to find a game that my kids would enjoy and then being horrified or surprised, choose your, your word, by the fact that the rules were so overly complicated. And a great example is like the Pokemon collectible card game. You know, there's a reason a lot of kids just collect the cards. It's more complicated than Magic the Gathering in a lot of ways. And, and you, you, you approach it thinking like, oh, this is going to be so fast and easy. Or there was a very short-lived which is probably proper uh, card game for the uh, My Little Pony. And I picked that up mm. and I tried it with my daughter and it was all I could do to turn off my game design brain as we played, hoping that at the end of it, my daughter would somehow say, I enjoyed this. And she's like, yeah, this wasn't fun. I'm like, no, it wasn't. Cause it wasn't light and silly and funny. It was like, you know, I accumulate X currency so I can do Y points of damage. And it was just so like mathematical when what you want is funny, right? And if you look at something like the, forget what the whole name is of the Spell Wizards card game, but that's an example of something where it's just silly and stupid to match the tone, right? And and that's the same thing. You're, you're totally right with RPGs, like looking at whether that fits. And there have been some games that I've looked at where when I looked at the preview, uh, and this includes OSR games. It includes more complicated games where I've looked at that preview and thought to myself, I'm not excited by these rules and these rules don't match the, the concept that I'm expecting out of the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why. Well, I mean, when we talk about the uh, Shadow Dark game, well, we can talk a little bit about that yeah. and what it promises versus what it delivers. Uh, but yeah. I, I was going to add some very, very insightful thought, but it's just gone. <laughs> it was so, uh, yeah. I mean, well, what would yeah. you say? You know, the question uh, of how do you quickly assess? So, so I guess if you can get a preview, you want to look at that game mm, loop. Yeah. I, you know, one thing to me is the, right. the, the size of it. And, and sometimes it's a trick because designers get tricked into thinking they have to have a 300 page book or whatever. But um, a lot of times, if it's mm -hmm. a light, fast kind of play experience, or, or this is like the RPG I'm going to play every now and then. I mean, that, that's one thing actually I care about a lot is, is the idea that this game is replacing my main RPG? If so, yeah. it needs to have the legs for that. But if it isn't, then I'm fitting it yeah. in every now and then into my already busy gaming schedule. So how easy is it for everybody to learn it? How quick? And, and there are games out there that are actually really easy. Like Numenera to me is a good example where there aren't that many rules to it. You could really like you can summarize it and it's very playable in a really tiny number of pages, but it's a big book and some of it's the monsters or the whatever, but it's sort of unnecessarily in my mind, big. It is more game than you need it to be. And, and that means you've got to look up more and you've got to think more when it yeah. could really be very light. One of the things I look at immediately if I'm looking at a new game book is if they put in one of those sections where it goes through a game session where yeah. you know, GM says, pick up your 20th die, and then player one, blah, 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 player two, to see what that looks like. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten to the point where I can figure out if they're lying to me. Right, where, where, where if, if the play <laughs> experience at the table to me says, 
this doesn't sound like real, what real players would do, or this sounds like it's been, there's pieces missing here. Yeah. There's yeah. rules here that they're not digging into that are more complicated than what they're admitting. Uh, there was, I was editing a book once where that section that the writer had done goes through the game in all its iterations and different checks and so on. And there's never a check that fails, mm. right? Players roll, they succeed. The players roll, they succeed. The players, And so my first thought was, what happens if, if the players fail a check? The game, this example doesn't tell me that. Mm-hmm. Unless the players are always succeeding in this game, then I need to know in this example yeah. what, what, that, what that looks like. Uh, so that's one section I go to pretty quickly in, in a book to see what what the play, the flow of play is supposed to be. That's great. Yep. Yeah. So let us now, oh, thank you for those questions, by the way. And if you want to ask your question, you can ask a question anywhere where we're on media. So you can ask us via Patreon Discord if you're a, a patron. You can ask us on YouTube. You can ask us on all the socials, Mastodon, Twitter, wherever we are up there, uh, we will we will find it and we will answer. Now our news and commentary section starts. Three new D&D books, Teos. Can you believe it? Three new books coming out. They're not game books, though. Well, I heard the From future Random is all digital. House. This Remember is how old? <laughs> Don't even get me started. Uh, <laughs> the... Uh, Remember when they're cutting tides with Random House? Uh-huh. <laughs> there are three books coming out from Random House. The first is A Long Rest for Little Monsters, a nice. D&D little golden book, mm-hmm. if you can b- believe that. Looking forward to that one. The second is Punchins and Flagons, the official Dungeons and Dragons cocktail book with 75 deliciously clever cocktails and snacks. And last but not least... A new novel, Dungeons and Dragons, Spelljammer, Memories Wake by Django Wexler. This is a reboot of a beloved D&D setting, according to the blurb. Young Axia, a, a join Axia, a young woman with a mysterious past as she embarks on a piratical adventure aboard a Spelljammer, a flying spaceborne vessel powered by magic. Wow. So you can find all of those uh, books out there. I think they're all on Amazon. So you can uh, check out more about each of them. What, what do you think about that? So, I mean, I want to get to Spelljammer, but let's just start with this is another great example where, you know, we heard the sky was falling. It was the end of the world as we know it, because ending Random House could do nothing but doom D&D. And, you know, Random House is covering three more D&D things. And, and it goes to that whole thing of, you know, you had to read the story really carefully to realize what it was that was changing. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't these kinds of things, right? What Random House was really doing and what D&D was doing is, is this discussion of who should carry core books and, and where to distribute mm-hmm. those and how versus these other sort of licensed products. And all three of these are licensed things um, that have been done rather than like D&D team things. Um, this is the second little golden book that has come out. I, I picked up the first. It's, you know, cute and silly and exactly what you'd think. It's a collectible, <laughs> unless you're a kid. Um, and, uh, you know, the recipe books have been big. So there's no shocker that someone decides to do a cocktail book and snack book. 
Spelljammer is really interesting because I mean, novels have sort of died at the wizard's level. So here comes the licensed one. And I read the whole Spelljammer series with Alden or whatever his name was and the Cloakmaster Cycle, I think it was called. Uh, all these Spelljammer novels, I enjoyed those quite a bit um, back in the day. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to pick this up. Um, but it's just, you know, it shows it shows the extent of D&D yet again that I mean, look at these three books, like such a wide variety of them. And they're going through Random House. So they have that wide distribution that can make it into Targets and Walmarts and all sorts of places and, you know, your corner drugstore and whatever. So very cool to see. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited, too. I I love to see some D&D stuff and uh, the, the wider than that, the better as far as I'm concerned. So. Looking forward to seeing uh, the content of these and, and how well they do. Now, Sean, I'm excited for this next story where you make my brain melt. Okay, so the University of Chicago has announced the release of Nightshade, a system that will help fight illegal AI scraping of art images. Okay. Uh, the, the University of Chicago already offers a system called Glaze, which is meant to protect images from being imitated. So this is glazes the shield that keeps it from, from being used, uh, imitated in the first place. Okay. Nightshade is the sword. Nightshade is the one that not only uh, will, well, it doesn't stop it from being used, but when it is used, it poisons the AI model <laughs> to make, the AI model essentially malfunction since it was used. Uh, and I, I saw this you know, like a week ago or so, and I, I read it or I read the, the blurb and I'm like, oh, more AI stuff. I, don't, I can't even deal. And then I read it deeper and I was like, this would be great if this would actually work. And maybe it will for a while. I don't know the behind the scenes, how it works. But the people that use AI models will figure out how it works, and then they will put in place countermeasures to stop the poisoning from happening. I mean, but, hey, you know, props. Like, did you ever think you'd play a game of Shadowrun where you're going through little nodes, and, and what you're actually trying to do is fight the AI from eating, like copying the file or something? So I, I read these these links because yeah. I, I you put this in the show notes, and I was like, what in the? And I look at this, and it's like. So what it does is, is you run your image through this thing and now it has nightshade in it, on it, whatever, you know, as part of the file. And what happens is that if you, the consumer, are looking at it on a web page, it'll look slightly shaded. But when an AI sees and reads the file, because it's not seeing it with eyes, it's digitally examining it, right? It will see, like, say there's a cow on the grass. <laughs> this article says it'll see a a leather handbag on the grass, not a cow. Mm -hmm. And what it might conclude if it sees enough of these images is that handbags eat grass and have like large straps or cows look like handbags and have, yeah. you know, it's just all bizarre. And so like you're literally poisoning the yeah. model because the AI begins to then erroneously make things and will like, you know, anytime you ask for like an animal, it might actually start handbagging it, right? Like that's sort of the concept that down the road, mm -hmm. the AI model would get so screwed by seeing 
these things because the idea is this is that when you do this what you're doing this when you're saying i don't allow you to scrape right and you're not supposed to be scraping my stuff so if you do i'm poisoning you it's it's so i mean what future have we dug ourselves into sean yeah yeah it's it's funny it's not it's not a funny topic mm. but we sort of it's it becomes a satire of itself uh after a while yeah and like i said next there will be the anti nightshade yeah models yeah. that will be able to somehow <laughs> you know figure it out it's it's yeah. it's like everything in technology it's going to lengths to the point of absurdity but hey it's out there and you can take a look at it from our links uh in our show notes i'm always keeping an eye on the folks that have left wizards to Mm -hmm. see what they're up to if they've landed a job somewhere else in the industry or have gone to an industry that actually makes money uh and we've heard now something from mike merles and chris Lindsay. they have new enterprises uh mike has reestablished his facebook page and has created a, a, patri- a Patreon. So uh, you can go to patreon.com slash Mike Merles. He's been posting uh, things about what he's going to talk about. And I think his first one is going to be about 5D uh, ability checks mm-hmm. and how they're currently wrong. <laughs> uh, so you don't have to be a patron to read like the uh-huh. surface level uh, thoughts of Mike. So you can go there. Chris Lindsay. Uh, looks like he's starting his own business uh, on LinkedIn. He said, I'm happy to share that I'm starting a new position as creative consultant and entrepreneur at self-employed. So it'll be interesting to see if Chris, who was the force behind the DMs guild, uh, is what's, is, is he going to right. stick with role-playing game stuff is, huh. or is he going elsewhere uh, with his skills? So we're, we'll, we'll be keeping an eye on that and, and more. That's uh, very interesting. Any, any thoughts there? Yeah, you know, Mike reached out talking about Monster CR, which he discussed on LinkedIn, and he's been posting a fair bit uh, on LinkedIn around sort of role-playing game thoughts. I think as he sort of explored how best to involve, get involved in the space. Um, I think with Mark, partic- Mike particularly, you know, he is someone who maybe is in a really interesting position because of the timing of this, where you know he architected Five E. And was one of the, he was the lead for the group, right? And and that group, obviously, um, while it went through many pains in the process, as, as he and others have shared, it was a difficult process. The results were incredible. And and so it's, you know, now he's he has not been part of that process, right? While well, he was even at Wizards. And so, you know, that might bring some folks to him to who say, you know, like, wow, we really miss what you did. Um, we wish kind of more of that approach was around you know, show us what else you do next, because that was really uh, an, an, a great outcome, right? So many people loved 5e. Um, so, so it might be in some ways good timing. I mean, I wish them both well. They've contributed so much to the hobby. Um, so, so I hope that their endeavors go well. Yeah. Um, it, it's always hard. You know, when I've talked to folks who've left Wizards, they always think fondly of their time at Wizards. Uh, and they often will say that it's really hard to make the money that you made at Wizards, right? Because it was a nice stable income at a high level with great benefits. And so it's exceedingly hard. So I wish them all, all well, because it's a hard thing that they're taking on, that they're trying to do. For sure. Yeah. 
We've heard from Legend of the Five Rings around Asian representation. Uh, Asmodee took over the Legends of the Five Rings game several years ago and was criticized for not working with cultural consultants to examine tropes and concepts that uh, underpin its role-playing game, which is, of course, based on the Asian world, samurais, clans, and culture. Um, what have we heard from Asmodee recently, Teos? Yeah, they, they put up a blog post saying that over the past few months, they've been working with a number of cultural consultants, including members of the Asian Represent podcast, who had done a review of Legend of the Five Rings and, and all of the content inside. Um, so the, the website and their blog post claims the team found that they were doing some things well, you know, pat yourself on the back kind of stuff. Uh, but they did acknowledge that mm -hmm. others do need improvement. And but it, was, it was sort of funny. They kind of have a quote uh, by Daniel Kwan sort of saying like, you know, something sort of saying like, yeah, you guys have been working on this hard. And it felt a little, to me, a little too self-congratulatory. Um, but, but they then go, the website does a really nice job of saying that they will what, what they're trying to do and what their general approach is. So they say, generally speaking, we'll avoid making direct analogs to real world religions, such as Shinto, Buddhism, and Taoism, and instead embrace the fantasy elements already present in the L5R universe. Where the setting includes culturally specific elements, we'll take extra time to consider the context of where those elements come from and what connotations they carry today. And you can check out the blog at legendofthefiverings.com uh, to, to see that entry. Um, it's good. I think, I think that's the kind of thing you want to do, right? Perfection is, is elusive, uh, probably impossible. Um, and, and different people are going to have different takes on it. You know, I, I tend to think that it's great for people to want to explore my culture. Um, and if we only had Colombian designers making Colombian games, uh, we wouldn't have a lot of games and we don't anyway. <laughs> so in some ways I would love for people to, to, to try their hand at, at, uh, Latin American type games. Um, but you want to do it well and you want to try to give it that understanding and you want to work with folks who are outside of your area. There have been a number of cases recently of folks doing stuff and Asian is probably the most popular one where you see it all the time. People do Asian style games and they don't consult with anyone who has the cultural sensitivity background. And that's a problem, right? So, so I'm glad to see that they're doing this. I don't expect perfection. I don't know how you would have perfection, but, but it's, it's that, it's that intent and that, slow learning that we all in the industry take on that I think is, is the greatest benefit. Last but not least in our news, hey, us what's fun. <laughs> it's three things, apparently. Uh, NPR okay, interviewed. tell me about it. Yeah, yeah. NPR interviewed uh, Catherine Price, who's written a book on this. And I, I picked this story because I found it, it kind of maps to RPGs surprisingly well. As I was reading over this, I was like, wow, this is why we're here, right? Um, and, and the, the story starts with basically a long preamble of sort of saying, like, you know, in these dark times, people find themselves not having fun. And how did I miss on, you know, I used to love life. Now I don't kind of thing. And apparently they'll pay a lot of money for coaches who help them and all kinds of stuff. And so this author goes, all right, what is fun? How can you just rekindle the joy you had when you were younger? And she defines it as three states, playfulness, connection and flow. And when those three states are together, like the center of the Venn diagram, that is the feeling of fun. She says playfulness doesn't have to be playing games, uh, but it is all about being lighthearted. Connection is about sharing experiences with people, and flow is being active and engaged. 
I thought of this. I'm like, man, that is exactly it's, why we're right. That's role playing games. Yeah, yeah, 100. Yeah. percent And the that's, I liked yeah. these three components because you can sort of take that apart and think through what we're often looking for in a game. Right? Is the game fun? Is, is it playful? Right? Is it is it getting us involved? And 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 is it, or is, is there joy to it? Um, are we connecting with the people at the table through the play, right? Or are we all playing like silos, mm-hmm. uh, our heads down? Are we not, you know, at the end relating to one another? That's probably why we seek out role playing so much, right? And then the flow aspect, this idea of being active and engaged, you know, we're often in our reviews talking about whether a scene, an encounter, does it properly bring you in and pull you there or you know can you just be sitting there at the table on your handheld because who cares what's going on it'll all just be fine anyway and and so i thought that was fascinating the other thing that made me think of is you know a lot of times when we can't get a game we try to hold on to the hobby in other ways right we might watch youtube videos where people talk about games we might watch actual play we might read books we might complain online <laughs> you know and those things aren't they don't have all three of these things, different ones, you know, like reading an RPG book, you might get some flow out of it, but you're not really connecting with people until you talk to people, you know, like mind. Um, and so, yeah, like all these different expressions of the game aren't the same thing, right? Playing a D and D video game isn't the same thing as playing D and D and this might be the why of it. And, and, you know, complaining online, doing things like that. That's why it's not fun. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, super interesting that you brought that up. Tomorrow, my my class starts writing for role-playing games. And one of the first things we do is talk about games and talk about fun. And, you know, why do we play games? What What is fun and what makes it? And I've mm-hmm. never, I hadn't seen this before. I may have to sneak that into uh, to the discussion because that's Great. super interesting. Yeah. yeah um, so thank you for bringing that to, to <laughs> the attention of me and everyone else out there. Have fun. And now we are going to get to our main topic today here on Mastering Dungeons. We are going to do a review of the Shadow Dark, Shadow Dark RPG. Uh, I have heard so many good things about this game. Uh, I have not played it yet, and I just got the PDF so I could review it. Um, we are going to take as long as we need to to get through this. Um, we want to be fairly uh, specific and measured in our approach to give you exactly what's in this game. Uh, I did sit on a panel with Kelsey Dion, the uh, the creator of this, uh, and the publisher via the Arcane Library. And after the, the thing, I said, uh, I've heard so much good talk about your work in this game. I can't wait to play it. Uh, because everybody, all my game design uh, peers were like, yeah, yeah, this we're playing this. I love this game. Uh, I have not played it yet, but you have, correct? I At have. least a... Uh, well, yeah. I, I played it with Kelsey running the game, which is unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's like, is that fair? Is it fair when your your experience is through Kelsey, through the author or the designer? I don't, I don't know. That may be too good. You know, <laughs> maybe I'm biased. Oh, it's absolutely fair. <laughs> That's absolutely fair. And so uh, as we review this, just keep in mind that I have not played it. Teos has played it once with the uh, with the creator of the game, whether that's fair or not. Um, 
So take everything we say with, with a grain of salt uh, as we look at what is in this role play game. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit more about Kelsey's background? Yeah, uh, as the sure. Uh, I've been following Kelsey and, and the Arcane Library for quite some time. Um, first, because Kelsey ran a really nice newsletter that would, would talk about the underpinnings of 5e in a really nice analytical way. So I enjoyed that newsletter, um, which has been a, a little slower recently, but um, but but it, and it used to have this sort of 5e emphasis. And Kelsey was writing um, 5e adventures, publishing them on the DMs Guild. Some of them great, gained great notoriety, like Matt Colville used one of them uh, to to run, you know, live and and that and talked about how much he liked that. And so Kelsey has deservedly gotten a lot of praise. Her strong mailing list. She began experiment with YouTube very clever approaches so she would take her adventures and give you a walkthrough of them right how to run them how to make the most of them great set up a discord started growing all these supportive fans so it didn't surprise me at all sean when this kickstarter dropped and was enormous and some people were saying you know who's kelsey and i'm like oh <laughs> kelsey is a force <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah that kickstarter had over thirteen thousand backers and pledged who pledged almost 1.4 million dollars in 2023 um and the reason we're getting to this now is because the fulfillment process is just taking place yep. so you can get the pdf uh, online from the store uh you'll have to wait for the books if you want a hard copy because they're just coming out yep. but what shadow dark promises is old school gaming modernized and something nostalgic, but new. And so as we talk about this, we're going to show you how Shadow Dark mixes current 5e rules with classic D&D concepts, and even some innovative OSR and indie game approaches. Uh, it's gotten rightful praise as one of the standout role-playing games of recent years, both for its crowdfunding success and the community that has grown around it. Uh, well, I just want to say here that that is really impressive, right? Because a lot of times you hear things like, you know, the Avatar role-playing game comes out and it breaks all the crowdfunding records. But you know what I don't see is people playing the game, right? And, and, and that's that thing that often plagues our industry that even if you have like a breakout notoriety and sales, you know, are there people really playing a game? People are playing Shadow Dark off the playtest version. Uh, enthusiastically so, right? You had all kinds of different groups who were running online games, who were playing both with Kelsey and running their own games. And the Discord was super active uh, because of the availability to write for the game. People were launching their, old, their, their own crowdfunding efforts to create their own zines, monsters, you name it. And putting those up before you could get the physical books in your hand, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that's amazing. And, and it's, you know, good luck trying to reproduce that. Uh, you know, I, I've told you the pieces that I, I gather from how Kelsey did it, but, uh, but it's incredible. It really is. And that well, community aspect is amazing. Yeah. And you know what helps there? Make a playable game. <laughs> yeah. Right? Make a game that you can actually play. You, you brought up the, uh, the Kickstarter for uh, Avatar. And I was teaching this class when that Kickstarter was going on. 
yeah. And so I was teaching Powered by the Apocalypse as a system. And so I was like, okay, has everybody heard about Powered by the Apocalypse? And nobody raised their hand. I said, <laughs> how many of you have heard of the Avatar role-playing game? And oh, people are like, oh, yeah, it's, look at how it's doing. And I bought it. And I'm like, you don't know about Powered by the Apocalypse, but you've done, done but you back, this is what you're buying. Yeah. This is what, yeah. what we're, and you don't even know. Um, so yeah, it's play, making a playable game can be real, super helpful. We'll, we'll see how playable this is, but I think you're getting a hint that we, we think it kind of is. Right, right. What I noticed as I started reading through this book was uh, it really hits that old school vibe over and over again and super hard. Uh, you're going into dungeons and these dungeons are dangerous but they're the only place that you are going to find the things that you want, which is money and power. <laughs> right. And fame, which goes along with power. Uh, right. Cause you, you get a title, the, the yeah, higher level true. you get. So, uh, so that's why you're going in and that's, that's, that's the game. And I just, I thought back to all of the OD and D and basic yeah. and even the AD and D rules. Uh, and the emphasis back then was more on storytelling because the rules were either fewer or so arcane that you ignored them, yeah. depending on if you were playing basic or AD&D or the original D&D uh, set. So that, that's what this leans into is this, yes, there are rules, but what you say and what your character does at the table are more important than the rules. Now that's always a claim by certain games, mm -hmm. but if it can come true is a completely different matter. And so we'll, yeah. we'll be taking a look at that as well. Um, you know, if there are fewer rules, what rules do you use and why? Mm -hmm. So we'll, we'll, we'll take a look at that. Uh, any other thoughts on this sort of overview of this topic in this game before we dig deeper into it? Yeah, I, I think that the the idea of simplifying your play, a core part of it is whether the play for that classic feel, you know, D&D had lots of rules, like you said, but they didn't bog down your, your, your immediate play, right? The loop... Mm -hmm the exploration the whatever of it that stuff was fun and simple and engaging where everybody around the table is saying you know like well do, do i think i could maybe tip the altar forward make it fall you know it's that sort of stuff instead of getting bogged down like i take the tip altar you know thing uh feet i so i therefore i can you know and like you've got to look right. it up and well does that cover stone altars and you're like oh i don't know you know there was less of that and 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 in fact when you looked up a rule it's often kind of fun to be like wait wait what's the climbing situation here and how can I do this? And, but your everyday things were fast. And this game is so fast that you stay in initiative <laughs> when you explore, yeah. which tells you a lot about that can only work, right? If you, if you can do things quickly. Um, and, and so that's part of the, that's almost the proof right there. <laughs> yeah. And part of me at, at the outset here, it, it relies on real time, mm -hmm. according to, to the, the, the rules. So if an hour passes at your table, an hour is passing in the game. Yeah. And 
what that means then is that the shortcuts that having extra rules bring, I want to make an investigation check to search the room, is a shortcut to say, all right, you find the thing in the room that's important versus what does your character do? Yeah. Which is, all right, you read about this room and there was a desk, a bed, an altar, uh, uh, you know, a three chest laid out on the floor. All right. I go over to the chest and I do this and this and this and this. Whereas an investigation check takes care of all that. Yeah. So you're automatically changing both the expectation, the speed, but that clicking, t clicking talk, ticking clock in the background. <laughs> uh, also, there's some anxiety. It, it, it puts you a little bit on edge. Yeah. That you want to keep moving forward. So there's all these dynamics going on that we don't know what it'll be until we play. Right. Or until I play, because you have played. So yeah. I'm going to be interested in hearing your experience about that as we get into it. And that's something this game does, I think, really well, which is a lot of games that have this sort of OSR simplicity feel will say like, oh, you know, I'm going to give you all this. I'm going to deliver on this. But but they either don't make it sound exciting or they don't actually deliver on those things. And and I think this game does a nice job of of putting its main the things it does, it's doing it on purpose to add specific elements and reinforce the gameplay in specific ways. And it does that very cleverly, like really good, like to where you kind of go like, how can it be that this isn't Kelsey's, you know, fifth RPG, right? Um, a lot of the, the games that I've looked at that have had similar success on Kickstarter, when I look at the preview files, I don't see this kind of cleverness where it isn't a side tacked on system. It is the core of what drives play, right? And things like the torch, the initiative, these are cores that are driving play and, and they do so effectively and are, and are part of the overall presence of the game, part of what's in your mentality and exciting from start to finish. So, so we'll, we'll see that as we go through and, and dig into those, those aspects we're talking about. Sean, this book, mm -hmm. it's uh, 324 pages. I'm holding it up here. Uh, for those who are, who are listening, um, it is, digest sized it says i mean basically it's like a novel kind of size um so while it says 324 pages you know this is a lot smaller acreage per page uh, and the font is is fairly large yeah um the big you know every page yeah. has a big heading almost always things are on one or the two facing pages and and so there's not the density that you might be used to there are a lot of tables um so it's all very good um, you know, I'm not complaining here, but, but just the 324 pages may be a little misleading. You know, I spoke earlier about how I don't love super big products. Right. Uh, I did not feel like this was unnecessarily large or anything like that because it's actually smaller than you think it is, uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. On a, on a page for a wizards of the coast, normal sized book, you're probably getting a thousand words per page, uh, unless there's art or a lot of yeah. big headings or tables. Uh, with these books, with that book, as I'm looking at it, maybe 200 words on a page. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are very few pages that are all text. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it is, uh, 
it is right. Yeah, it's a small game despite the 324 page book. Yeah. The art is all black and white. Um, you know, it is uh, mm-hmm. in, in that kind of style that's sort of classic, which is good. It evokes that kind of classic play. Um, it is generally really nice art. You know, not, a number of the folks who do art here have done art for RPGs in the past. They're, they're very well-known folks. Um, so it's good quality art. It's fun. Sometimes it's a little, you know, shoved in there, anything into the layout. But but it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being picky. The reality is overall, it's a really nice looking book. It's, it's nice to read, enjoyable to read. Uh, comes with a one of those little um, um, threads in it, you know, that, that you can... Uh, pull in to mark your spot in the book as a sort of built-in bookmark. Very nice. A ribbon bookmark. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> no, it's, it's okay. I just want to make sure I was getting that right. <laughs> yeah, the ribbon. Uh, yep. Yeah. Yeah. So the the book is divided into a player section and a game master section, with a lot of random tables and smaller sections throughout, dealing with like mo- topics like monsters and treasure. So what is the base of a Shadow Dark game? Very simple D20 themed characters. So if you are familiar with 5e or any game going all the way back to basic set, you are familiar with with these uh, four classes that you can be. There are also ancestries, which match up with the D&D fantasy races. However, everything has been simplified down to quite a basic level. Mm-hmm. Your, with your ancestry, you might get one uh, benefit. With classes, you're going to roll randomly to get certain feats, type things, powers given to you by uh, that class. And that random rolling Deadly is... Deadly and fast combat. Can I just say that random rolling mm-hmm. is particularly old school in that it's it's not only like, you know, oh, roll randomly for your hit points, but roll randomly to see which feats you get, mm-hmm. right? Which talents. Um, yeah. You can even do, there's an approach we'll talk about in character creation where you can create a bunch of zero level characters randomly determined, right? Um, your your mm-hmm. stats are random. So all that is really part of the, the, it gives you that sort of old school feel that you're not in control. You're not... You're not building a third edition, you know, optimized power attacker. It's whatever the dice no. give you. So, yeah, and even your your ability scores, your attributes are roll three d six, and not even four d six, right? It's three d six, and you get what you get. Um, your average is going to be a ten. Uh, there, there is that rule in there that we're all used to, who played way, way back in the day. Whereas if if none of your abilities are above 14, you get to try again. Um, yeah. So it, you know, it really leans hard into that randomness, quickness. You're not sitting there and planning out your character, you know, your build for 10 levels. No. Uh, you're just, you're rolling up a character and it's rolled up. Uh, any other basic concepts that you wanted to share? Yeah, so dungeon crawling is a big emphasis, and you know we'll we'll talk more about this. But one of the things that I think ends up being a bit of a question is the emphasis is heavily on this sort of dungeon crawling, and then it'll just sort of here and there talk about being in a forest or being in a town, and you're like, wait, wait, what? How how do I do that? Doesn't quite really say, <laughs> but but the idea is this always on initiative, and that the bulk of play, I guess, is underground in the dark with this torch light 
system to facilitate that kind of fast, deadly combat, right? If your light goes out, things get really bad. Uh, you're always in initiative. Monsters kind of slip in and out of that. Um, treasure grants XP. So we're kind of back to that kind of, you know, AD&D days of like count mm -hmm. up your coins. Um, and, and things like, you know, uh, a magic item has a certain XP grant that it provides. Um, but to counter this, you have limited item and equipment slots. We'll talk about that more later, too. So this means you can only carry so much. We're truly doing encumbrance in a simple way. This is a, a kind of not typical, but there are a number of games that have this sort of OSR approach of just having slots and deciding how many slots a thing takes up. So you're not adding up pounds. You're just taking off a slot and deciding whether you put that in there or not. And if you need to carry something else, well, what do you do? Do you get rid of a torch? Do you get rid of your shield? <laughs> Can be a little hard and right. every odd level your character is yeah. getting a random talent which is sort of like a little mini feat simple feat yeah and when we say feat we're not talking about anything more than one line yeah so it's not you know a stack of several features that are within a feat it's literally you know do an extra point of damage or extra yeah. uh plus one to your attack roll uh is is as good as it gets there uh if you're interested, there is a free 68-page preview that you could get. Uh, I think it's on the Arcane Library website, but you can also get it from DriveThruRPG. The Quick Start also gives you a free adventure called Lost Citadel of the Scarlet Minotaur. Uh, and if you need support, Shadow Dark fans have you covered. There are free uh, everything out there. Um, there's an official Shadow Dark zine called Cursed Scroll with 68 pages of classes and spells and adventures and other content um, in each issue. So you don't have to worry about not having that community out there to share with because it's out there. If you think about the four classes, you know, that's something that we go, wait, wait, just four classes? Well, but then there are others that, you know, show up in other places and mm -hmm. it's not hard to imagine how to do it. So it's like, yeah, it starts with four, but you yeah. can always find places that will give you more options. Yeah, and the good thing about this is if you have those four, you have the template for many, many more. And since the design is light, I won't say easy, I won't say simple, I'll say light. You can e easily create your own without worrying too much about overbalancing or or making sure everything works together uh, because even the classes are fairly straightforward um, and iconic with previous D&D. &D. Mm -hmm. So that said, let's talk about the uh, intro. What are the basics of the book? Chapters generally start with a little bit of in-character fiction that serve as an example of play. Uh, we get very pithy lines that hammer home this old school dungeon delving danger filled uh, theme like the shadow dark is a place where danger and darkness hold sway so uh and what defines this game speed danger and simplicity magic is perilous which it is and battles are fast and deadly which remains to be seen since i haven't played um being clever is crucial for survival. Uh, and that's that last one. Where, again, we're getting into that 
there there is a style of play that supports this. It's mm -hmm. not one that you might be used to if you started playing with third edition, fourth edition, or fifth edition. So what that means to some people are going to be completely different from what it means to someone else. And playing and running a game like that can be challenging and can take some getting used to. So yeah. we'll see how this game handles that flow. Yeah, and so on your turn, you are going to describe, it's pretty typical, right? It's, it, you're going to describe an action you want to do. If that requires a check, your DM might ask you to do a check to determine if you succeed. Um, and you can move. So it, it uses distances. So it'll say you can move near, which is 30 feet. And if you don't take an action, you can move twice. So we can see with this, you can easily support miniature play or just theater of the mind because you're doing these sort of near, far, I forget what all, somewhere down here, we've got them all listed out. But, but uh, you're moving 30 feet, you're moving near, um, either moving twice or taking an action. So that can be an attack, it can be some sort of explorations. But there aren't skills, so you're going to be generally working off of attributes unless your character has something special to them. Um, a lot of the concepts you might expect are here, and it, it's kind of surprising. Like, oh, advantage and disadvantage, right? The six classic stats and attributes are there. Um, and it's really interesting because as I read this, I mean, Kelsey does something that I'm particularly terrible at. Like, I'm really bad at distilling things. It, it, it is painful for me. I, I kind of enjoy it, but it is hard, laborious work for me to pare something down to its essentials. And I could never do as good a job as she does here. This, you know, when you distill down to what, describing what strength is or describing what, defining what the fighter is, uh, it's incredibly masterful here how this is done. It's really good. And... But I will say that sometimes I found myself thinking as I read it, this really assumes, this is a game that absolutely assumes I know what I'm doing in other RPGs, specifically D&D. &D. Like, it doesn't bother explaining a lot of stuff. It just assumes, and like, yeah, it has some examples of play and stuff, but it just assumes that you grasp all these concepts, and it doesn't use up words on holding your hand for them. It gives you these bare bits. Right. Because you kind of already know that this sort of stuff is going to happen. And, and, but most RPGs, if you read any of these other RPGs we've talked about, they do waste a lot of words hand-holding you through this process. And this is an RPG that doesn't. It just, I mean, nothing is bigger than right. a paragraph. And, and almost no paragraph is bigger than two or three sentences. It's really kind of remarkable. It's true. And, and so, like, you know. And, yeah. Yeah. That, that, was, that was an important point that I want to get across here. It's in certain places, I've seen people say, oh, the Shadow Dark RPG, if somebody is interested in role-playing games, you should just give them this book and they'll be able to run games immediately. That is not the case. Yeah. Right. This book is simple. It is a pared-down system that, from everything I've read so far, looks like it would be fun to run and, and even easy to run. But it does not teach role-playing games to right. people who are not used to role-playing. So it might be a good system for you as an experienced RPG player or game master to teach new players with. But there's still that level of understanding the flow of things and when to pull the trigger on a check, when to let something go. 
mm-hmm. that you do not get from this game no. that will be clunky unless you know. Yeah, like, you know, if I think of a lot of complaints of 5e, like one that recently came out when they sh- when D&D showed um, a spread of the backgrounds from the 2024 5e upcoming player's handbook, they received criticism of like, wow, you've really pared down these backgrounds, right? And they were still, you know, relatively meaty, but but they weren't as much words as they right. were in the 2014 version, which are full of kind of lore and establishing that background in the world, right? And then I look at this and, you know, I'm going to hold up the, the mm-hmm. page that has the thief class. So part of it, one page, there are two pages for the thief class. One is full page art. So forget about that guy. And then we're just yeah. left with a few, a table of talents and just the most barest. I mean, it really is one sentence mm-hmm. explains what the class is. <laughs> and then we're down yeah. to saying what are weapon and armor efficiencies? What are the hit points? What's the two special features you get? And that's it. That's the class, right? Yeah. And so if you don't, it doesn't, it's not telling you a whole lot about what a thief is, right? It's just. And, and you turn the page thinking, what else is the thief? Oh, no, I'm onto the wizard. <laughs> like, it's like, wow, okay. <laughs> yeah. Wow, this is pared down, yeah, right? It, and there's it, a lot in this book. It's like, it's like I said earlier, if that's, if that's over 200 words, I'd be very, very surprised. So right. you have a whole class and it takes 200 words uh, to say what exactly that uh, class does at first level uh, or at all levels, because all you do when you level up is roll for a new talent. Uh, yeah. And no talents are all right there on that page. So there you go. Again, great for quick play. Great for for uh, lots of different ways to use that tool, um, but not the tool for every job. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just just to to be completely aware there. So we've already talked a bit about characters. Characters, creating a character is pretty straightforward. You name your character, and there is a chart that you can roll your character's name on. Uh, Ancestry, class, level, XP. You can choose an alignment deity. A title, which is given to you by your class and your level. A background, stats, hit points, armor class, attacks, talents, spells, and gear. Now, we say it's a simple game. That's still a lot for someone who is not adept with role-playing games. Each of those things is quite simple. Each of those things is quite easy to do, and many of it is just rolling on a table. Uh, But it's still a lot to keep track of. You can start at first level, or you can start at zero level. Uh, If you start at zero level, characters are meant to be fragile. And this reminds me of the uh, DCC funnel, right? I think that's sort of... Yeah, the idea yeah. behind this, which is if you if you can survive your first adventure, then you can work your way up to first level. A zero level character doesn't have any of the things that the class gives you, but you can use any gear to start with. Uh, you uh, have uh, some some random starting gear and alignment of background and hit points equal to your con modifier. So you may have one hit point and uh, off you go on your first adventure. And if you survive, congratulations, you have graduated to first levelhood. Um, and, 
Stats yeah. are, as I mentioned earlier, 3d6 in order. Yeah. I was just going to say that um, the zero level characters, th this is an example of something that's in the book, which is sometimes I'm reading something like, oh, great. Yeah, I understand it. And then later I read something else and I go, wait a minute. You didn't tell me that back in the zero level characters mm -hmm. section. And, and there's a little bit of that in this book. You know, I think that this book, if it had a second edition, there could, there could be some things you could do to tie some things together. So later it talks about different styles of play. And, and it talks about something that's become very popular, which is what's called the gauntlet, where you roll up four zero-level characters completely randomly using another section that isn't right here that has how to roll up uh, random zero-level characters. And then you see, you take one, and it'll probably die as the idea, and, and you'll play another. But the, And if all four die, you get to make a new set. But, but the idea is that probably one of those four will get to first level. And that tells you a lot about the game. But that sort of gauntlet mode is very popular with Shadow Dark, um, be, which, which is so telling, right? Um, and when you are doing zero level, I think part of the allure is that you, you know, you're probably really focusing primarily on your personality. I know in my playthrough I did, like I, there was, there's very little on the page. Uh, when I played, it was sort of a, probably the encounters program for D&D, you know, it had those sort of half page cards. It was, it was about that size. I played a priest. And everything was very simple on there. And so, you know, when there's not that much on the page, you move beyond it, right? And you, you role play a bit more, you do more. Um, and so I think that it's a fun way to get started. Very simple, very easy to grasp those concepts. And then you can add a little more when you reach first level. It's, it's a good way to go. We're about to dive into creating a character. I have a feeling that we should wait here. Okay. And really get dig into it next time. What do you think, Tails? That sounds good. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a really interesting awesome. system for character creation. Uh, that that mm -hmm. it, it, if I look at this book, because we're doing you know overview, this book has this character section that's a big part of the book, and it has a, a gameplay and GM section that's another big play. And it's interesting to compare those two. So we want we want to give the characters the the proper time. Mm -hmm to dig into how, what, what they're like yeah. and, and what it means for them to be what they are, which I think is not apparent at, at, at the sure. initial place. And I think one of the things that distinguishes Shadow Dark from other games like it is how well this ties together. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. So we're excited to continue with our look at Shadow Dark next week. And we want to thank everyone who listened and who talks to us online. And we want to thank specifically the patrons who keep us going here. Um, we have Master of Dungeon supporters who support our patron uh, Patreon. We have Master of Realm supporters. They get a shout out in our show notes. And we have Masters of the Multiverse patrons. And they get a shout out on the show right now starting with Keith Ammon of the Monsters Know What They're Doing fame, Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Merrick Blackman, Evil John, Darren Chandler, Seth Eckel, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Nathan Fuller, The Mighty Jerd, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Chad Jackson, Brian King, Jim Klingler, a.k.a. DM Prime Mover, Chad Lynch, The Matha Magician, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Mike Olson, Chris, Mighty Zeus, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Robert Pasley, Vladimir Prenner from Croatia, 
against Russo at Drago Russo. Ross, <laughs> I lost it there. Mm. <laughs> Ross Sandberg, Andy Shockney, Krishna Simonse, Trace, Joe Tyler, James Walton, Graham Ward, and Chris Webster. Thank you for your support. If you enjoy our show and would like to become a patron, we would so appreciate that. We are so excited to, to give, give of ourselves and all the people who've helped us out. And you could do so as well by going to patreon.com slash mastering D&D. You can also help us out by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or via whatever means you listen to the podcast or uh, subscribe via YouTube, which would help us out as well. Teos, where can people find you and your work on the interwebs? Find me on alphastream.org. That's where I hide out. From there, you can reach all the different places and all my endeavors. Sean, where are you hiding these days? I am not hiding. I am out there in public, proud as can be, on all of the social media places, uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Blue Sky, Mastodon, and the show is on most of those places as well. So you can reach out to us, ask us questions via any of those places at Sean Merwin or at Mastering D&D. You can always, always go to the YouTube channel and we uh, read through all of the comments on there as well if you have anything you need to tell us or ask us. So Teos, with torch in hand, we are crawlers going deep, deep into the shadow dark. What are we going to do now? Oh, well, uh, I'm definitely going to follow my three principles to have fun. Uh, everybody's going to be worried about how deadly mm -hmm. it is. And I'm just going to be making jokes and engaging and uh, creating community. That's how I shadow dark. Yeah. Is that? Yeah, I'm looking for the digital version, but I'm not <laughs> seeing it anywhere. But I'll probably be dead by first level anyway. So what, what difference does it make? Well, it'll be coated in nightshade. <laughs> there you go.